From the studios of EWTN, this is Open Line with today's host, Father Wade Menezes. In North America, call toll-free 1-833-288-EWTN. That's 1-833-288-3986. Outside North America, call 1-205-271-2985. You can also text the letters EWTN to 55000 or send an email to openline at EWTN.com. A tremendous Tuesday to each and every one of you. Thanks so much for tuning in to EWTN's Open Line. If you'd like to be part of the program, Father Wade is chomping at the bit to answer your questions. The number is 833-288-EWTN. That's 833 833- 288-3986. If you're outside the United States and Canada, that number is 1-205-271-2985. You can always uh, uh, give us a call and we'll put you straight to the front of the line if you are from outside of North America at 1-205-271-2985. You can always send us an email, openline at ewtn.com. Or you can text your question to Father Wade. Text the letters EWTN to 55000. Wait for a response. Text your first name and your question. Message and data rates may apply. I'm Jack Williams. Michael McCall behind the glass, spinning the dials, producing the program. Who's doing social media? Ace McKay. Best radio name in the history of mankind. Ace <laughs> it has that McKay. radio ring to it, doesn't it? And if you, yeah, Michael McCall is offended now. Uh, <laughs> the, uh, but, uh, but you know, it's, it's interesting because you know who Ace McKay looks like? He, looks like, he looks like Ace McKay. If you envisioned <laughs> the coolness of an Ace McKay, it is perf- personified in Ace McKay. It's really quite remarkable. Uh, but he's handling our social media efforts, so if you're watching us on YouTube or Facebook Live, you can type a question into the chat window, and when he's finished patting himself on the back, he may get it to us by the end of the program. And our host, as he is uh, every Tuesday, the equally cool um, Ace Menezes. <laughs> you be careful, Jack. Ace may ask for a raise. You never know after, after these kudos, you know. But uh, speaking of names, I want to give a shout out to good friends of mine from California, Mark and his wife Michelle, and their four kids who are visiting this great Tuckasee region that is South Central Kentucky and North Central Tennessee, and they actually branched out to West and East Tennessee and visited Memphis and Knoxville as well as Nashville and here at the Father's Mercy for Sunday Mass this past Sunday. So a shout out to them. You know, Jack, I know you how you are about your cow jokes whenever I mention my dairy background and, and whatnot. So th- this family, Mark and Michelle and their kids, they are a dairy family from California. So I've been joking with Mark and Michelle that they need to uh, load up the cows and bring them to either Tennessee or Kentucky and uh, have their dairy over here. So I know you're probably thinking it would mean a, a move, right? Mm-hmm. So, uh, But that's all right, because we could use more dairies in this part of the South, both Kentucky and Tennessee. So a shout-out to them. Well, I've never heard a bigger collective boo in my entire <laughs> life. <laughs> well, you know, I, I won't Hol- give up my day Hol- job then. Holsteins? Holsteins? <laughs> yeah. Brown, what, brown what Swiss? It, what else is there but Holsteins now? Come on. Brown, brown Swiss? <laughs> well... It depends on who you ask in the dairy industry. What other breeds are there? <laughs> okay. All right. If you say so. <laughs> but so, I want to um, talk. Our so, spring, go ahead. So speaking of St. Hillary, 
<laughs> yes, that's right. That's, that's right. Exactly. Our, our springboard is not about cows or dairy breeds, although maybe one Tuesday it could be. One, one Tuesday maybe it could be. Uh, I want to talk about a great treatise on the fear of the Lord, quote, in quote, from St. Hilary of Poitiers, early church bishop, uh, on servile fear versus filial fear. And this is something I've talked about in the past here on Open Line Tuesday, either uh, associated with a certain question we might have had, or maybe as a topic itself. I know I covered it back in 2018, and I think it's worth repeating again. Now that we're halfway done through Lent, huh, and we're approaching the great celebration of Holy Week here in a couple weeks, it's important to have the proper fear of the Lord, which is a filial fear, the fear of not wanting to disappoint precisely because you know God loves you, as opposed to a servile fear, uh, a fear of punishment, huh? of, of, of subordinate under superior or master under slave. That's not the kind of fear we're supposed to have. You know, first of all, Scripture says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. A good understanding have all those who practice it, Psalm 111. And also, Sirach chapter 1 says, "...with him who fears the Lord it will go well at the end." On the day of his death, he will be blessed. And also, Jack, so important is the fear of the Lord that it is also listed as one of the seven gifts of the Holy Spirit in Isaiah chapter 11, right? Uh, the spirit of the Lord will rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and of understanding, the spirit of counsel and of might, the spirit of the knowledge and fear of the Lord, and he will delight in the fear of the Lord. So St. Hilary says this, that blessed are those who fear the Lord and who walk in his ways. Notice that when Scripture speaks of the fear of the Lord, St. Hilary says, it does not leave that phrase in isolation. No, not at all. He says, fear is not to be taken in the sense that common usage gives it. Fear in this ordinary sense is the trepidation our weak humanity feels when it is afraid of suffering something that does not want to happen. We are afraid, or made afraid, for example, because of a guilty conscience for the rights of someone more powerful than us, uh, an attack from one who is stronger than us, or possibly fearful of sickness or encountering a wild beast or suffering evil in any form. He says this kind of fear, a servile fear, is not taught. It happens because we are weak. We do not have to learn from what we should fear, because objects of fear bring with them their own terror. Huh? But of the fear of the Lord, this is what is written, quote from Scripture, Come, my children, listen to me, and I shall teach you the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord, then, has to be learned because it can be taught. It does not lie in terror, but in something that can be taught. It does not arise from the fearfulness of our nature. No, it has to be acquired by obedience to the commandments, by holiness of life, and by knowledge of the truth. For us, the fear of God consists wholly in love, and perfect love of God brings our fear of him to its perfection. Our love for God is entrusted with its own responsibility to observe his counsels, to obey his laws, and to trust his promises. Let us hear, he says, St. Hilary, what scripture says, and now, Israel, what does the Lord your God ask of you except to fear the Lord your God and walk in his ways and love him and keep his commandments with your whole heart and with your whole soul so that it may go well for you? Blessed are those who walk in the ways in the fear of the Lord. And again, Sirach uh, says also in chapter 2, those who fear the Lord will prepare their hearts and will humble themselves before him. And Luke chapter 1, verse 50 says, and his mercy is on those who fear him 
from generation to generation. So uh, a proper fear of the Lord then, Jack, is not the fear of a cruel master or a dictator. No, that is servile fear in which the dominant person, the person who is feared, not only has power but ill will towards the subordinate. The object of servile fear does not will the good of those over whom he has power. Rather, he dominates and subjugates. That's not how God is. Uh, this servile fear is the fear of escaping from divine wrath, of avoiding punishment, of survival, actually. It is this kind of fear St. John refers to when he writes the following, And this is love perfected with us, that we may have confidence for the day of judgment, because as he is, so are we in this world. There is no fear in love. But perfect love casts out all fear. In other words, filial fear casts out servile fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and he who fears is not perfected yet in love. We love because he first loved us. And lastly then, the fear of the Lord we are called to cultivate, other than servile fear, not that at all, is quite different. And it's hinted at in the selection from John's letter. It is filial fear, from the Latin filius, which means son. This is the fear of a son who does not want to offend his father precisely because he knows his father loves him. In other words, it's the fear of not wanting to cause disappointment or to give offense at. It is not a fear of retribution or punishment, no. In this proper sense of filial fear, we recognize the infinite gap huh, between us and the Lord, and not only in terms of power, but also in terms of goodness. That is the fear we are supposed to have, a filial fear and not a servile fear. So we do not fear being annihilated by God, but we recognize in our own humility that he could do so if he wished. And in our worship and service, we thank him for his great unbounded mercy, unbounded. This distinction between servile and filial relationships is expressed clearly by St. Paul in Romans 8, where he says, quote, for you did not receive the spirit of slavery, that is servile fear, to fall back into fear, no. But you have received the spirit of sonship, filial fear. When we cry out, Abba, Father, it is the spirit himself bearing witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. So this can all be summed up then, Jack, by St. Francis de Sales, great doctor of the church, one of my favorites, patron saint of communicators and those in journalism who states we must fear God out of love, not love him out of fear. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. It's a free phone call anywhere in North America. 833-288-3986. It's Open Line Tuesday with Father Wade. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. If you have a question, call 1-833-288-EWTN. That's 1-833-288-3986. Outside North America, call 1-205-271-2985. Or send us an email to openline at EWTN.com. Don't miss the latest political and cultural reporting and analysis on topics of interest to Catholics and people of faith on The World Over with Raymond Arroyo and get news from The World Over in your email inbox every week. Sign up today by visiting EWTN.com and click on subscribe. 
One line open for you at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. We have a question, Father Wade, if I can scroll back, from Angela, who's watching us on YouTube. And she wants to know, why is the Virgin Mary's crown always shown as perched on top of her head instead of actually wearing it around her head? I'm not sure I know what the question means. Perched on top of her head? Yeah, you know, like uh, the vision of Our Lady of Fatima, how it's kind of sitting on top of her head and off to the side. It's not down around her brow like you might expect someone to actually wear a crown. My guess would be that it's just a depiction of how a visionary saw her. That or or the artist who depicts the approved apparition as such. Uh, Yeah, I I don't know. I I don't think it's anything uh, pertinent to uh, what we would believe about uh, private revelation or anything like that. Um, I've seen pictures of Our Lady of Fatima and Our Lady of Lourdes and so forth uh, with and without a crown. For example, in, in Our Lady of Lourdes, she's usually not depicted with a crown. With Our Lady of Fatima, she is. Our Lady of Knock, Ireland, she is. Um, uh, Our Lady of Medjugorje, which is a, not a fully approved apparition, uh, I don't believe she has a crown on. Um, so, you know, it's just various depictions, uh, the culture she appears to uh, by God's design and, and, and divine providence, uh, to, to the culture, to the seer, how the visionary seer, how he or she sees her, and so forth. And then on top of all that, an artist's depiction. And if you'd like to see Mary with the a crown more down around her forehead than you can come to our house. And we have a giant statue of Our Lady of uh, there you go. Solitude that was at our nuptial mass that we crowned her uh, during that mass in that same crowd. I'm afraid to touch it now because it's... And it's you know the, that beautiful statue of Our Lady of Grace, that's Our what Lady I, that's of Immaculate Conception, yeah. um, uh, crushing Satan's head in the form of a snake is that beautiful side altar in the upper church at the Shrine of the Most Blessed Sacrament in Hansville, Alabama. And that's a very large crown that truly is sitting on her head, because I've mm-hmm. noticed before, it virtually comes down almost to her brow. Uh, it sits so beautifully on her head. So there's an example in a statuary depiction, not an apparition depiction, but in a statuary depiction, where the crown is is truly present as a second secondary object resting on the head of the statue, and it, it fits beautifully and, and rests near the brow. Uh, first up today is Patrick in Bismarck, North Dakota, listening on Rio Presence Radio. Patrick, you are on with Father Wade Menezes. Thank you. Here's my question. Are my prayers efficacious if I'm not in a state of grace, and are answers to prayer dependent upon my grace state? Okay, great question. You're asking a question of of perfect versus imperfect contrition. So, Patrick, when it arises from a love uh, by which God is loved above all else, over punishment, for example, you're sorry for most of all because you've offended God, and secondarily because you fear the punishment that will come because of the sin. Um, When it arises from a love by which God is loved above all else, contrition is called perfect. such contrition remits venial sin. It also obtains forgiveness of mortal sin, and if includes the firm re- resolution to have recourse to sacramental confession as soon as possible. And this is where I want to interject something else. We, we forget that point of Catholic doctrine regarding mortal sin. Some people believe that the mortal sin is forgiven uh, only, only, only when they confess it in the sacrament of, of confession. Well, 
remember, as soon as you commit a mortal sin, hopefully the remorse will be immediate, even before you get to the confessional, right? So when it's perfect contrition, meaning that you're sorry for your sin, whether venial or mortal, but I'm talking specifically about mortal sin here, most of all because it's offended God, that perfect contrition also provides the forgiveness of mortal sins if it includes the firm resolution, quote-unquote, to have recourse to sacramental confession as soon as possible to confess the mortal sin. Uh, Then contrition, Patrick, is called imperfect, also called attrition. Imperfect contrition is synonymous with attrition. Uh, Is also a gift of God, a prompting of the Holy Spirit, but it is born of the consideration, we could say, of sin's ugliness or the fact of eternal damnation, if it's mortal sin or uh, uh, temporal punishment that has to be fulfilled, if it's, um, if it's venial sin, and, and other penalties threatening the sinner. Uh, it's the contrition of fear as opposed to the, the contrition of charity. Contrition of charity is, is perfect contrition, and contrition of fear is the attrition, the imperfect contrition. Such a stirring of conscience can initiate an interior process, uh, no doubt, uh, under the prompting of grace, uh, through God's actual grace, and it'll be brought about to completion by sacramental absolution, which brings the soul sanctifying grace. Remember, you can receive an actual grace while in a state of mortal sin, but you can't obtain sanctifying grace while in a state of of mortal sin. Uh, By itself, however, imperfect contrition cannot obtain the forgiveness of mortal sin, but it predisposes one, we could say, to obtain forgiveness uh, in in the sacrament of of penance. It'll it'll lead one, hopefully, to make a a good confession. This is why when one commits a mortal sin, grave matter done with fullness of knowledge that it's grave matter and done with deliberate consent of your will anyway, make a perfect act of contrition, sincerely so, very soon after you've committed the mortal sin, coupled with the firm resolution to go to confession as soon as you can, okay? So our merciful God, in other words, Patrick, is always there to begin the process of reconciliation, including acting as the good shepherd, uh, we could say, to bring back a wandering sheep to the fold, like Matthew 18, verses 12 and 13 tell us. Um, This could include the sincere prayer of one in mortal sin regarding a loved one, uh, God can use that prayer to foster the sinner's own reconciliation. And so you, the answer to your question is yes, but it has to be a qualified yes based on whether it's imperfect contrition, meaning attrition, or whether it's perfect contrition, which is done out of the love of God above all things, uh, and, then, and then imperfect contrition being because of the fear of punishment, etc., that, that you fall prey to because of that. Um, and so that we want to always try to have a, a make a perfect act of contrition, which is all about the love of God above all things. So the answer to your question is yes, but it's a qualified yes. Great question. Thank you so much, Patrick, for that question. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. Next up is Roland in San Antonio, Texas, listening on Guadalupe Radio. Roland, you are on with Father Wade Menezes. Good afternoon, guys. Uh, God bless you, Father. Thank you. You're welcome. Father, the uh, demons in the Gedderian Cemetery knew who Jesus was. And my question is, did Satan knew, did Satan know who Jesus was when he was trying to tempt him in the desert as the Son of God? Yeah, in fact, there's many times in the Gospels, Roland, where uh, Jesus is about to cure someone. And uh, before Jesus imparts the cure to the individual, the person screeches in voice, 
we know who you are, Jesus of Nazareth, or they'll go so far as to say, we know who you are, the Holy One of God, or we know who you are, the Son of God. Um, and so, you, you know, th- there's, there's proof right there, scriptural proof, that Satan knows exactly who Jesus is and who was, who was sent to save the world, the only begotten Son of God. So the answer is, is a definite yes, and, and many of the Church Fathers write about this very, um, these very scenes, acknowledging the uh, intellectual capacity of Satan, uh, of the devils, uh, keen intellectual spirits, as the angels are, and remember, they're fallen angels. So um, they still retain that, that knowledge as pure spirits. Um, and so where the good angels who chose for God remain our helpers in heaven and on earth, the fallen angels uh, remain now our tempters in hell and on earth. And in God's mysterious providence, they're able to tempt like they tempted Jesus, who had a fully human nature just like ours in every way but sin. But the Gospels uh, provide the proof, especially prior to a cure, that they indeed knew who Jesus was. Great question. Thank you so much. Uh, Jacinto's watching us on YouTube, Father Wade, and he wants a little clarification on your previous answer. And he asks, so you can still be in a state of grace when you're in mortal sin? No, the state of mortal sin takes you out of a state of sanctifying grace, but a person in such a state of mortal sin without sanctifying grace can still receive an actual grace um, to prompt them to move closer to reconciliation with God via the sacrament of reconciliation. And if they make a perfect act of contrition while in a state of mortal sin, and thus without sanctifying grace, if they make a perfect act of contrition it, with a firm resolution to get to confession as soon as possible to confess the mortal sin, it does remit the mortal sin, but it still needs to be confessed. So the question is, you, you can receive that actual grace, but not sanctifying grace. Alice is next up. She is in the great state of Iowa, a first-time caller. Uh, Alice, you're on with Father Wade. Hi, Father Wade. Thanks for answering. Hello, Alice. Thank you for your call today. You're welcome. You're welcome. Uh, my mother, every time she would pass a cemetery, she would say, May all the souls of the faithful departed through the mercy of God rest in peace. Did that do something, or was it just a good gesture? In the, in the Roman Book of Indulgences, it gains the soul a partial indulgence to acknowledge the faithful departed when passing a cemetery or when praying for the dead at a cemetery. Um, and then for the first full eight days of November, one can gain a plenary indulgence, of course, November being the, the month in honor of the Holy Souls, um, they can gain a plenary indulgence once a day, every day, for the first eight days, um, either for themselves, still living, the individual himself or herself, or they can apply it to a deceased person known or unknown to them. Now, for the last two years, um, uh, this past year of November 2021 and the previous year, November of 2020, Pope Francis extended that plenary indulgence to the entire month of November, praying for the holy souls in purgatory in a, in a cemetery precisely because of the pandemic. He extended the, in, the uh, plenary indulgence beyond the eighth day. So that's probably what your mother was doing, was she, whether she knew it literally or not, acknowledging the, the souls of the faithful departed when passing a cemetery and offering a prayer for them 
can gain the, the soul a partial indulgence. And so that's probably what she was doing, whether she realized it or not, because uh, why do I say that? Because she might have been doing that just simply from uh, her own uh, having grown up with a parent or grandparent who did the same thing. So she grew up doing the same thing as an adult, although she may not have known the particular the particular why, quote, unquote, but that that's the reason why that it's rooted in. So great question, and, and a great thing to remember the importance of praying for the dead. You know, the, the members of the church suffering, also known as members of the church penitent, are the holy souls in purgatory who are assured heaven. The members of the church triumphant are the holy souls already in heaven, and the members of the church militant are those of us still fighting the good fight on earth, and this three-tiered hierarchy is known as the doctrine of the communion of saints. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. Plenty of time for your calls at 833-288-3986. It's Open Line Tuesday with Father Wade Menezes. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Right back to the phones we go. Lisa is up next. She's a first-time caller on Long Island in New York, watching us today on YouTube. Lisa, thanks so much for holding. Welcome to the program. Thank you. What's your question today? My question is, um, why don't we have uh, the the, uh, gift of tongues in the Catholic Church? Okay, well, I don't know that we don't. you know, the Acts of the Apostles makes clear that the Apostles spoke various languages or, or tongues uh, that first Pentecost Sunday, and not just one language. We read that uh, when the day of Pentecost had come, 50 days after Easter, they were all gathered in one place, and suddenly a sound came from heaven, huh? like, like the rush of a, of a mighty wind, and it filled all the house where they were uh, sitting, and there appeared to them tongues as of fire distributed and, and resting on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and began to speak in other tongues or other languages as the Spirit gave them utterance to do so. In other words, um, Lisa, the unifying force of the Holy Spirit stands in, in a blessed, blessed contrast, we could say, to the very punishment received at the Tower of Babel in the Old Testament when the people sought unity apart from God in Genesis 11, verses 1 through 9. Here in Acts uh, chapter 2, verses 5 through 13, uh, most of the people recognize the miraculous nature of this Pentecost event of speaking in other languages of, of the earth. Um, there have been uh, a, a few cases where this has happened, and it's been documented. Um, it's not that one doesn't have it. We all have different gifts. Um, we all have different um, gifts. We all have different talents to employ for the church, and not only spiritual gifts, but also temporal gifts, uh, teachers, administrators, uh, educators, uh, those of accounts and finance uh, for the, on behalf of the faith. Um, you know, we even read in the New Testament how care was taken to provide uh, for the means of the poor and the widowed, and that took financial uh, realities to take care of them. Uh, so there, there's those who, who handle that aspect. Um, there's teachers of the faith, there's administrators of the faith, like I said. So everybody has their different gifts. We should never think that one gift and one gift only, tongues or not tongues, is the, is the, the sign par excellence to show that you somehow have the gifts of the Holy Spirit. I, I opened up my springboard topic talking about the seven gifts of the Holy Spirit found in Isaiah chapter 11, right? So uh, we, we read very clearly um, in, in that chapter 
uh, right here, that so important is the fear of the Lord that it is also listed as one of the seven gifts of the Holy Spirit in Isaiah chapter 11, verses 2 through 3, quote, The Spirit of the Lord will rest upon him, and the Spirit of wisdom and of understanding, the Spirit of counsel and of might, the Spirit of the knowledge of the fear of the Lord, and he will delight in the fear of the Lord. And then I went off into my springboard topic on filial fear versus servile fear, and how we're, we're called to have the former, not the latter. So uh, there's the seven gifts. There's also the 12 fruits of the Holy Spirit, right? Um, modesty, chastity, goodness, self-control, modesty, etc., the traditional 12 gifts. Uh, it's the, it's the uh, Dewey Rames version of the Bible that gives us those three extra ones, and the more modern translations give us the nine, but St. Jerome in his Latin Vulgate gives us the, those three extras. That's why we, we say the 12 gifts of the Holy Spirit as opposed, as, excuse me, the, the 12 fruits of the Holy Spirit as opposed to the nine uh, fruits in the more modern translation. So um, there's that as well. So we should never think that just one, and, and these are the spiritual gifts, the seven gifts, the 12 fruits, and the tongues. Let us not forget the temporal gifts that are also mentioned in, in Acts, like administration, like teaching, like preaching, like accounting, etc. So this is the beautiful variety of the membership of the church, and we should never think that one gift alone or one fruit alone, temporal or spiritual, is, is the gift par excellence over the others, because everybody is different, and everybody is called to cultivate their natural gifts and talents on behalf of the church. So great question. Thank you so much. Uh, next stop for us is Ontario, Canada. Anthony is in Canada today listening on Sirius XM Channel 130. Anthony, you're on with Father Wade. Good evening, Father Wade, and thank you for taking my call. Oh, you're most welcome. Thank you. I was wondering if you might be able to offer some good advice on the most effective way to participate in Eucharistic adoration. Recently at our church, our priest reintroduced it. We had had it going, and then the priest changed. But recently we have it back again. And I would just like some um, advice on the best way to, uh, the most effective way to participate in Okay, great, great question, Anthony. Thank you so much. Before I answer your question, Anthony, I want to just recap the previous caller. The, the 12 fruits of the Holy Spirit are found in Galatians 5, verses 22 through 23. Charity, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, generosity, faithfulness, gentleness, modesty, self-control, and chastity. And if you go to the Dewey Rames, uh, the English version of the Latin Vulgate of St. Jerome, he lists those three extra ones in there, where the more modern translations have the nine. So sometimes I'm asked, why are there nine fruits of the Holy Spirit in some translations of Scripture, and why are there uh, twelve in others? That's the reason why we go by the Latin Vulgate, and I'm always ready for extra gifts of the, uh, extra fruits of the Spirit. I don't know about you. <laughs> but anyway, to answer your question, uh, we Fathers of Mercy have a great little booklet written by one of my confreres, Father Luis Guardiola, uh, titled uh, The Acts, A-C-T-S, The Acts of Adoration. And what it is, it's a little tiny paperback pamphlet where Father Guardiola of the Fathers of Mercy recommends breaking up your Eucharistic Holy Hour into four 15-minute quadrants, huh? based on the acronym ACTS, A-C-T-S. So he proposes 15 minutes of adoration. Now, of course, the whole hour is adoring Christ, truly present in the Most Holy Eucharist, but all he's saying is 15 minutes of actual adoring, where you have a purposeful adoration per se, adoration as adoration, 
for 15 minutes. That's the A. Then C, 15 minutes of contrition, telling God you're sorry, maybe striving to make that perfect act of contrition, meaning you're sorry for your sins above all because they've offended God, and only secondarily because of what they threaten you with, with either temporal or eternal punishment. Number three, T, uh, A-C-T, 15 minutes of thanksgiving where you're thanking God for the many graces and gifts that he's bestowed upon you, and even thanking him for the not-so-great things that have happened in your life. You know, Lord, I don't know why I got that flat tire today in your divine providence. You permitted it, uh, but may something good come out of it. Maybe patience, growth in the virtue of patience, for example. So thanking God for things, right? The good and the bad, and everything in between. And then S, supplication. Uh, Asking God is another way of saying supplicate or another way of saying asking is that we supplicate God. So how to break up your Eucharistic holy hour in in four 15-minute quadrants based on the acronym ACTS, A-C-T-S, adoration, contrition, thanksgiving, and supplication. That's something you might want to get. Uh, also, go to a Real Presence, uh, excuse me, therealpresence.org. Therealpresence.org is a wonderful website that has a lot of resources to help make your Eucharistic adoration and Eucharistic holy hours more fruitful uh, in the mind of, of our Lord Jesus Christ and his bride, the Church, to make your holy hours more efficacious. Also, you know, some spiritual reading. I always like to recommend definitely some scripture in the presence of the Blessed Sacrament, but also some spiritual reading, maybe a classic like Thomas Aquinas's uh, Imitation of Christ, or uh, St. John of the Cross's Dark Night of the Soul, or Teresa of Avila's The Way of Perfection, or St. Francis de Sales' Introduction to the Devout Life. Or how about as we get closer to Easter and Divine Mercy Sunday, how about uh, reading portions of St. Faustina's diary, Divine Mercy in My Soul? So spiritual reading, scripture, which would be Lexio Divina, divine reading specifically is scripture, uh, some spiritual reading of the lives of the saints. How about some catechetical reading, like uh, committing yourself to five to seven or ten numbered paragraphs of the catechism when you go make your weekly holy hour at your parish's uh, perpetual adoration chapel. Um, you know, there's the rosary, there's the, there's the vocal prayer, the rosary or, or the divine mercy chaplet. Um, you know, there's also the prayer of quiet, just sitting in the presence of our Lord, right? So um, there's all kinds of things that can be done. Hopefully your pastor, having started this, this Eucharistic Adoration Chapel, hopefully he'll make available some resources for his parishioners in the Adoration Chapel itself. Most Adoration Chapels that I visit have a bookshelf on the back wall when you first walk in, and there's the sign-in uh, book to sign in to say what time you were there to make sure that our Lord always had at least one person adoring before him. Uh, so you sign in your name and your time, and then there's a bookshelf there with a variety of spiritual reading, uh, different copies of sacred scripture, the lives of the saints, uh, a couple of catechisms, and so forth. There's also a rosary rack where some rosaries are hanging up, and also some brochures on how to pray the rosary, or uh, uh, pamphlets on how to pray the Divine Mercy Chaplet. So there's all kinds of things there, and hopefully your pastor will make uh, this wide variety of, of um, materials available to his people, especially having just getting, just having gotten the, the Adoration Chapel off the ground and, and running. So that's a, that's a great thing. Do some of those ideas help you out there? I think we might have lost him. Yeah, I think uh, I think he uh, he uh, had to step away. Okay. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. One open line at 833-288-3986. Next up is Thomas in Houston, Texas, listening on Guadalupe Radio. Thomas, you're on with Father Wade. Thank you for taking my call, Father. 
Father Wade, uh, I enjoy listening to you. Uh, The question I have is, I always hear the term, make an act of perfect contrition. And I'm always unsure as to how to go about that. Well, remember, uh, a perfect act of, of contrition, like the spiritual life itself, Thomas, would not depend on passions or feelings or... Uh, the emotions, okay? Remember, that's not what makes a prayer efficacious in God's sight. Uh, A firm and deliberate, committed act of the will is what makes the prayer efficacious, that you you move your will closer to God. The the feelings are, are, they come and go, they mean nothing, right? For example, the seven sacraments don't rely on the efficacious uh, passions, emotions, or feelings of, of of their of, of having been administered, rather they rely on the fact that they were administered. The doctrine of ex opere operato, um, the, the the Latin phrase is often rendered in the English by virtue of the work having been worked. In other words, by virtue of the sacrament having been administered. So, for example, the masses I celebrate, provided I use the proper matter and form, brings the Eucharist in our midst by virtue of having been worked, uh, celebrating the mass the Mass with proper matter and form. Uh, it doesn't rely on... The, the efficaciousness and reality of the Eucharist brought into our midst does not rely on how Father Wade feels in regards to his passions, emotions, or feelings during that particular Mass. And that's a great thing, right? Uh, if I'm having a bad day and, and I'm still celebrating Mass, I want my Mass to be efficacious. I want the Eucharist brought into our midst. So even the seven sacraments don't rely on the feelings, emotions, or passions, okay? Uh, they, they work by virtue having been worked, ex opere operato. So for your perfect act of contrition, you want to have first and foremost a firm, deliberate, and committed will that you're making this act of contrition now, most of all because it's offended God, and only secondarily because of what it threatens you with, with eternal or temporal punishment based on the sin you committed, mortal or venial. So Pay attention to the wording of the traditional act of contrition, right? Now, there's many different versions of the act of contrition. All I'm saying is pay attention to the wording of this particular one. Oh, my God, I am heartily sorry for having offended you, and I detest all of my sins of the past and of the present because I dread the loss of heaven and the pains of hell, but most of all because they have offended you, my God, who are all good, and deserving of all of my love, I firmly resolve with the help of your grace to always confess my sins, to do my penance, and to amend my life. Amen. So notice the intention of the imperfectness is mentioned first, and then secondarily, but the, the, the perfect contrition. But most of all, because they have offended you, my God. So that's the perfect, so that particular version of the act of contrition ends up being the perfect act of contrition. In fact, I love that traditional one because it's mentioning both, and it's mentioning the perfect contrition especially the most, and that's why I like. So I detest all my sins because I dread the loss of heaven and the pains of hell, but most of all because they, have of, they those sins, have offended you, my God, who art all good and deserving of all of my love. So that's a perfect act of contrition. And it doesn't rely on the passions, emotions, or feelings. Rather, it relies on an act of the will and with deliberate, uh, committed will of wanting that to be the perfect act of contrition, coupled with the resolution 
to get to confession as soon as is reasonably possible if it's a mortal sin that has been committed. Grave matter done with fullness of knowledge and done with deliberate consent of the will. There is sin that is deadly and sin that is not deadly, the New Testament tells us, and that's where the Catholic Church receives its, its um, doctrine on mortal, the reality of mortal sin versus venial sin. So great, great question. Thank you so much, Thomas. Next up is Joanne, another first-time caller in the great state of Colorado, listening on Sirius XM Channel 130. Joanne, welcome to the program. Oh, thank you very much, and thank you, Father, for taking my, qu- my question. You're I need welcome. to give you a tea. Can you hear me? Yes. Okay. I just need to give you a quick little piece of background to make it, my question make sense. My daughter's in her 50s, and she has been diagnosed with um, multiple brain issues from a traumatic brain injury in September. It's forever uh, altered her life, and um, I'm her primary caretaker, and she has, uh, through all this, she has uh, wanted to come into the Church. I did not raise her as Catholic. That was my era. Um, So my question has to do with how do I explain to a hurting person who desperately is trying to establish a relationship with God the difference between, or, the, or that um, God does not punish us with sin for, for sins, uh, punish us with sickness due to sins. This morning's Gospel reading, you know, he um, cured this man, and then he said, take up your mat, you know, and sin no more. And then just in a few Gospels before, uh, or at least I kept, I, I'm not, can't remember references, but I mean, Jesus says to uh, someone who says, well, who who committed the sin that caused this person to be ill, the mother or the father? And Jesus says, no, it's not, that's not how it works. So I need loving words to explain to my daughter that God does not punish, he doesn't punish us by making us sick. With that, I'll let you talk, Father. Thank you. Well, thank you, Joanne, so much for a beautiful and important question, especially during the the season of Lent, which is the most penitential season throughout the entire liturgical year, where we want to practice uh, prayer, fasting, and almsgiving, not only for our own sanctification, to draw us closer to God, but also for the sanctification of the world. This is why almsgiving, for example, is, is so wonderful, and, and you're practicing almsgiving by being a primary caregiver to your own daughter. Um, I'd like to recommend, Joanne, that you go to fathersofmercy.com, and at the home page in the upper right side of the home page, which is the first page that comes up when you go to fathersofmercy.com, click on the little magnifying glass icon, and when you click on that magnifying glass icon, little picture of a magnifying glass, a search bar comes up in the middle of the page. Simply type in the words, Six Benefits of Suffering. Six Benefits of Suffering. And it's a, it's a one-page document that I've done on the salvific or redemptive aspect of suffering. And I'll just comb through them quickly now for the benefit of all of our listeners, uh, based on this wonderful series of questions that you're asking. First of all, suffering unites the sufferer with Jesus Christ and his own cross, which itself, his cross, capital C, was meant to be saving and redeeming for all. Now, we're members of his body, and he's the head of that body. And if that body suffered, when we look at a crucifix, we can say that body suffered. We can also say, I am a member of that body, thereby being able to say, thirdly, I'm going to suffer too, because I'm a member of that body of which he is the head, and his body suffered. 
Okay, And the church is the mystical body of Christ. And we're members of that body, and he's the head of that body. So suffering unites the sufferer with Jesus Christ and his cross, which itself, his cross, capital C, was meant to be saving and redeeming for all. Number two, I like to say that suffering helps us to be more sympathetic toward others who are suffering, even if we ourselves are the ones suffering. So your daughter can learn to be uh, more sympathetic towards others who are suffering in any way, shape, or form, and not wallow in the mire of her own suffering. Uh, now, I'm not saying your daughter's doing that. I'm just saying that your daughter can, can prevent herself from going down that route, going down that road. We don't want to wallow in the mire of what's called the pity party, having a self-pity party, huh? Um, I have a very good friend. Uh, she doesn't mean to be flippant here. She's, she's really being serious because she's big on the redemptive aspect of suffering. She doesn't use the phrase pity party. She uses the phrase pity potty. Don't, don't wallow in the mire of your own pity potty. And, and I think she makes a good point because even our Lord says, or excuse me, St. Peter says in 2 Peter 2, don't be like the dog that returns to its own vomit nor like the sow that returns to wallow in her own in her own mire. We don't want to get into that self-deprecating mode where we wallow in the own mire of our own suffering, huh? So suffering helps us to be more sympathetic towards others who are suffering, thus getting us out of ourselves, is what number two is trying to say, right? Number three, embracing suffering helps us to expiate and make reparation for past sins we've committed. That is, the temporal punishment due for them, which must be, which must be expiated either in this life on earth or in the next life in purgatory before we can enter heaven. Um, also, suffering can be offered up for one's personal needs and intentions and or for the personal needs and intentions of others living or deceased. This is tied to the doctrine of merit, um, congruent merit uh, or condign merit. We can offer up for the other who is living. We can offer up for the other who is already deceased, known or unknown to us offering our suffering for the holy souls in purgatory who are suffering, for example. Again, this is tied as well to the doctrine of the community of saints, the members of the church suffering or the church penitent in purgatory, and the members of the church militant still living on earth, fighting the good fight, which your daughter and you are still doing, and which I'm doing, and which Jack is doing, and our whole team here at Open Line Tuesday is doing, each one in his own way. We're fighting the good fight of faith, which can include suffering. And then also tied as well, thirdly, to the members of the church triumphant who can pray for us, right? So suffering can be offered up for one's personal needs and intentions or for the personal needs and intentions of others, living or deceased. Number five, suffering strengthens personal character, thus leading one to grow in such virtues as patience, courage, fortitude, fidelity, and peace. Uh, three of those five that I just said are also gifts of the Holy Spirit that we pray for an increase of. Uh, when we have the moral certitude, we're in a state of sanctifying grace, that is, with no, no, no known mortal sin on our soul. We have the moral certitude, we're in a state of sanctifying grace, which means we have the seven gifts and the twelve fruits of the Holy Spirit working in us. Huh? And then sixthly, suffering benefits the caregiver of another, in this case you, uh, your daughter's mother, uh, Joanne. Suffering benefits the caregivers of another in that they... Uh, can benefit from and strengthen their embrace of and grow in such virtues as compassion, empathy, patience, and fidelity by way of being other-centered, which you are doing for your own daughter, 
right? So there's a beautiful section on suffering and its reality in the Universal Catechism of the Catholic Church, and it's, it's a little looked-over uh, section in the Catechism, and that's why I like to refer people to it. And it's, it's, it's from those passages on suffering uh, in the Catechism where I receive these six primary um, uh, uh, points on suffering and its self salvific aspect, its redemptive aspect, and it's rooted deeply, deeply in the cross of Jesus Christ. Again, go to fathersofmercy.com, and then on the search bar, after clicking on the icon of the magnifying glass, simply type in six benefits of suffering, or if you just put in the word suffering, I'm sure it'll, I'm confident it will still come up. So, uh, Joanne, thank you so much for being able to, to care for your daughter as her primary caregiver, and, and may your relationship as mother-daughter grow even stronger through this cross that you're both called to embrace. And remember, the Church never permits an evil, whether it's a moral evil like sin, uh, for example, the sin of adultery. Uh, God never permits a moral evil nor a physical evil, in this case, illness. He never permits a moral evil or a physical evil without allowing some greater good to come out of it. And you're right about those passages from the gospel. God doesn't cause evil, but in his mysterious divine providence, he permits it, in part because he permits things to function according to their own nature, huh? Somebody's purposely speeding, purposely speeding to show off or whatever, which is a sin against neighbor because you're putting your neighbor in their own vehicles uh, uh, at, at risk. Somebody speeds and they get in a car accident, they can have an adverse side effect physically from that car accident, right? So God doesn't cause evil, but he permits it in his divine providence, primarily because he lets things function according to their own nature. And, and we humans in our fallen state, resultant of the original sin of our first parents, can fall into sin, like wanting to be prideful and show off in our vehicle and speed. That's just one example, right? But then there's the mysteriousness of, a, of, a, of an illness that comes on uh, without no known effort on the person's part. They just get the illness. We don't understand that. Uh, but, but we do know this, that God will never permit a moral or physical evil without some greater good coming from it, Joanne. Never forget that. Do, d does that kind of help you out? And I, I really want to encourage you to print that out on your home printer at fathersofmercy.com, the six benefits of suffering, the salvific and redemptive aspect of suffering, and share it with your daughter. Or better yet, uh, if she's able to understand and hear with her, with her brain illness, play this portion of Open Line Tuesday for her, even, even the visual of it on, at the YouTube feed or the Facebook feed, um, or at least the audio from the podcast. Thank you so much, Joanne, for a very important and beautiful question. Thank God you. God bless you, Joanne, and we'll keep you in our prayers for sure. Father Wade, where can they find more about the Fathers of Mercy? At go by going to fathersofmercy.com and reading all about us. Would you leave us with a blessing? I certainly will, Jack. May the blessing of Almighty God, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, descend upon all of our Open Line Tuesday listeners and remain with each and every one of you this day and always. And as my ink pen says, Jack... St. Joseph, Terror of Demons. Pray for us. On behalf of our host, Father Wade Menezes, our producer, Michael McCall, our social media maven, Mr. Ace McKay, I'm Jack Williams. Thanks so much. Oh, and Matt Kubensky, our call screener. Thanks for tuning in. Back at it tomorrow with Father Mitch. Until then, God bless. <laughs>